Hi, and thanks for listening to Curious Medicine. I'm Christy. I'm Brian. And today we're talking about house calls. Brian, I understand you have a story to get us started today? Yes, since we usually start with some sort of funny little story. When I was a kid, I lived in, I've mentioned before that I lived in Georgia, and when we go to visit our family in Rome, Georgia, which is in North Georgia, we would stay at my... uh, Sounds so exotic, Rome, Georgia. North Georgia. We'd stay at my uh, aunt's house, and there was a large bed that they had. This, you know, this old timey, like gigantic beds that looked like they belong in a castle somewhere. Like a poster bed. Yes, okay. but like on steroids. Okay. And so my sister and I had to share a room, and so we would stay in the front room in that bed. And every time we'd have to hear the story about how yo daddy was born in that <laughs> very same bed. And we look at each other like, ugh. And so I've never personally had an experience with a house call, but they immediately thought about that story that my father was born, you know, by uh, a doctor, I believe, was there and a midwife, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of the way it was done there. We'll touch on that a little bit later um, as we move along. But yeah, that was my story with a house call, just knowing that my daddy was born in the same bed that I was going to be sleeping in that night, which was kind of gross. But so... First thing, take I, us into the ancient. Oh well, yeah, you know I'm going to get in the time machine. But f- <laughs> what is a house call, right? So, d- the definition of a house call is a visit to a home by a doctor to provide medical care. Pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. But why is it? What makes a house call so special? And one of the things I came across was the 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 idea that it allows a physician to gain perspective of a patient's living situation while interacting with the patient in a familiar environment. I, I want to start by getting in the time machine here. And okay. as much as I try to take us back to uh, tribal situation or tribal uh, uh, tribal times, I couldn't get there because they say that house calls are old as medicine itself. Mm-hmm. But there's no real record of a medicine man or a village uh, doctor or anything like that in, in tribal city, uh, uh, areas visiting huts and teepees and things like that to deliver medicine. Yeah, I there wasn't very much about ancient medical practices regarding house calls, but it it did say for at least Egypt and Greece that they did make house calls and mm-hmm. and again, you know, it was mostly set aside for those who could afford to mm-hmm. summon a doctor. And let's just home. clarify when we talk about house calls, I think what what everyone in their mind pictures is the guy with the hat on with the black bag. And we're going to get to the black bag and where it comes from and all that kind of stuff, but as we go back into history and look at the concept of a doctor or a person who's delivering medical care coming to you rather than you coming to him. That's not a, a new concept. It's been something that's been around in every society at some point um, uh, to some degree. So you fast forward to Rome. And remember, we talked about this in other episodes that Rome, uh, Roman physicians were primarily Greek physicians that were captured as slaves. And sometimes uh, they generally were former slaves. And a lot of times they would buy their freedom and open their own practices to be able to practice medicine. So uh, physicians in Rome were not looked at as necessarily the highest level. They're not high in in society and status because of their relationship to being former slaves. Yes. Uh, Midwives were actually treated with a lot, a great deal of respect, obviously, because people were having a lot of babies. And so midwives would be the, the, took the role of coming to provide medical care for people. Mm -hmm. And if you were wealthy enough, you would actually retain your own 
I guess if you bought your own freedom, you're no longer a slave, but you would retain your own medical personnel to be able to provide medical care for you. Mm -hmm. But everyone else would have to go to generally like places like baths and gymnasiums, places like that where kind of healthcare was delivered. Mm -hmm. And it said that the Greek physicians opened their own practices, but there wasn't very clear on whether or not this was like a brick and mortar type, you know. These were Greek physicians in Rome. Correct. Okay. Correct. But I don't, I, it was not very clear when they yes. say open their own practices. Is yeah. this like, you know. Yeah. What that meant. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, they, they did have the, they were practicing medical care independently at that point. But there is some mention that if you were wealthy enough, basically, the physicians would come to you. And you remember, you had different physicians like Galen, mm -hmm. but they're primarily reserved for the wealthy. Everything in Rome was, was hierarchical. Ooh, I almost nailed it. Hierarchical <laughs> status or uh, society where you get more or less based on where you are in that hierarchy. Yes. And so the traveling physician, a lot of times would travel to the rich and a lot of times to treat and travel with gladiators and the, the Roman army. And so that was kind of the, the role that they filled there. So I know a lot of times we, we stick with, when I do my research, I like to start at the beginning and try to see if there's a link to hunter-gatherer, I guess is the word I should yeah, use. Yeah, like how know. far back can we find? Yeah, how far back can we make these topic. relationships, yeah, right? Exactly. So, and I'm sure maybe there was like uh, healers within certain groups that did travel around. I didn't find any evidence of that in any kind of literature anywhere, but and, you know, you have to assume that, hey, I know a dude, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this guy, my, my friend in this village needs this, and the guy would go around, I don't know. But I don't want to make everything just kind of the same track where I go Egypt, then I go Greece, yes. and then I go Rome, because yes. clearly there were other cultures, I acknowledge that, that had different things. But China is where you do have a lot of writing about physicians and care. There was a lot of traveling medical care in China, but mm -hmm. there was a real distinction between who was considered a Confucian-trained doctor and non-Confucian-trained doctor. And I hope mm -hmm. I'm saying that right, right? Confucian? Confucian? Yes. So at any rate... Uh, itinerant doctors were kind of low on the totem pole. And itinerant, so if you were a Confucian doctor, you were kind of the upper echelon of physician and mm -hmm. one that was trained in that philosophy and that that's how you would deliver medical care. And you were trained, you were skilled, mm -hmm. you knew what you were doing, basically. And mm -hmm. so they kind of, they didn't do a lot of traveling and you came to them, from what I understand. Now, okay. Someone may correct me on this, but that was the, the kind of the way it was set up. So they were highly regarded and they were too good to travel. Got it. Yes. <laughs> got it. I got it. Then they didn't want to travel because itinerant doctors were linked with midwives and shaman who were kind of low on the totem pole, right? And itinerant doctors were typically not trained and they were therefore labeled non-Confucian. And they were also labeled quacks a lot in which I believe the term they used was yonggi, or I believe mm -hmm. that's correct, where if, they, if the practitioner or the patient didn't like the treatment, then all of a sudden they just labeled you this young gi, which meant mm -hmm. crack, and then yeah. you were you you know your reputation yeah. was ruined, and so yeah. they the, slandered you. You're right, and so but you set yourself up for that depending on where you were going, and so mm -hmm. and plus you were right along with the with the midwives and the shaman that were kind of you know, and people were like that didn't work, <laughs> you know. So the other doctors kind of left that alone. They were like, no, we don't travel. You come to us, and so now we go to Europe. And here we start to see an, uh, where medicine after the fall of Rome, and then we start get into the Middle Ages, and we start to see where 
medicine. We covered this before when we talked about barber surgeons and how uh, the clergy kind of took over the role of medical mm-hmm. care. And and in some places, the clergy would set up hospital. Uh, I, I don't remember the term they used, but it was basically like hospital area, cottage hospital. Excuse me, I saw it in my notes. College hospitals that were set up on, with in monasteries mm-hmm. to provide care to the poor. Mm-hmm. And uh, physicians were trained in uni- well in university settings. I guess would be the, the way we put it. And, mm-hmm. and yes. they were only kind of available for the wealthy. And so if you weren't wealthy you, and you were extremely poor, then you would have to go to the church to help you in whatever they, way they could. Yeah, and charitable. Rem- yeah, right. And remember, mm-hmm. we're still in that era, era where sickness and disease is linked to spirituality right. and your, your connection to God. So right. if you go, got diarrhea... Go, get, go to the church and get you some you. Jesus. Yes. yes. If you got and, diarrhea, and get rid of your diarrhea, you did something. That's <laughs> right. on you. You sinned. Right. But you get barber surgeons who traveled around and provided health care at that time, too. And so after barber surgeons kind of after the monks were basically cut off from really providing medical care mm-hmm. and, and were left more towards the spiritual care of the human being, someone else had to take that role. And that's where you start to see the barber surgeons traveling around making what we would consider now really legitimate house calls to patients mm-hmm. and then really going through. And we talked about the urine wheel where they would do a urinalysis on a patient mm-hmm. and then based on the four humors, determine what's wrong with you and then administer mm-hmm. certain things like colonics and bloodletting and all that kind of stuff. And so that was stuff that you could expect from a typical visit from a barber surgeon. Mm-hmm. And these are things that, you know, now we look at like bloodletting someone and then sticking a, 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 a clister up their butt <laughs> and then putting in, you know, roses and herbs and everything else probably didn't do too much for them, but that was what you got when you yeah. got a house call. So, well, I I have this interesting book called Strange Medicine, and I was reading that the other night, and I came across this chapter about Hendry. Okay, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name very well, but he's from um, from France in the medieval times, and his name was Henri. No, Henry de Mondeville. <laughs> I'm sorry again, please. Henry de Mondeville. <laughs> I think it is. I have a friend named Henry who swears that it's pronounced Henri. Henri. Because okay. it is French. I'm and sure so, it is. And I'm sure also the last name is not de Mondeville. But I'm he sure was born in, uh, I believe, in New York. So I'm not I'm thinking that. I think his name is Henry. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sure the last name is something more exotic than that. But anyway, he was the first French surgeon to write a surgical text. And in his writings, he, this is what I found. This is the kind of stuff that I just, this is the whole reason that I love doing this podcast is because this research brings about the most interesting things. So his writings in his surgical text (laughs) advised doctors and surgeons that when they make a house call to bring a violin player or someone to tell jokes, I guess for distraction purposes, trick the patient into thinking that things are better than they seem. Be on your best behavior when dealing with family members. (laughs) Exude competence, whether you're competent or not. Still applies today. (laughs) No matter how despicable the family is, flatter them. Pretend to know and care about the patient himself. So what cracks me up is this idea that you would (laughs) 
bring a violin player or someone to tell jokes. A I mean, stand-up yeah. comedian and a violin yeah, player. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like such a sideshow. I mean, I, I... We've talked about how we, we work in medicine. And when you walk in the room, you introduce yourself and you say, you know, I'm Brian and I'm going to be doing blah, 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 blah. I can't imagine going into the room and saying, hi, I'm Brian. <laughs> And right. today we're going to be looking at, and this is this Frank. Is, He's this guy's going to show you a card trick or yeah. two. <laughs> just keep your eyes focused on him. Just forget about what I'm doing. And you want to start playing uh, concerto number five, please? <laughs> and then, and just one more thing. And while we're in this vein is that this is another thing. During the 12th century, there was a handbook written. I'm not sure who wrote this, but the handbook is called The Doctor's Visit. And this book advised that if you, the doctor, don't know what's wrong with a patient, say, the liver is obstructed. And if the patient's pain is somewhere else, insist in a loud voice, the liver is obstructed. (laughs) And then the book actually said, patients do not understand it, which is very important. (laughs) So like, just confuse them. (laughs) Just make something up. Stick to it. I'm using Do it. Do not depart from your original diagnosis. And the louder your voice, the more co- commanding, you know. The next patient I see with a very obvious fracture, I'm going to go, the liver is obstructed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually goes along with the idea that I had mentioned uh, at one point. I, I think we were talking about barber surgeons. But that the theory was that the the furnace of the body, the liver was the furnace of the body. Mm-hmm. And so any kind of uh, medicines, for example, weren't effective if that's why they used enemas, because medicines weren't effective if you took them orally, because the heat of the liver would burn up the medication, uh-huh. which again, somebody so wanted to stick something up someone's butt. So I guess if the furnace is obstructed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was some dude that was like, you know what? I have a better idea because the furnace, the liver is obstructed. We're going to play a game yeah. now. Just bend over and touch your toes. <laughs> because the liver is obstructed. Right. So I, I think there was a thought that that the liver had more had so much control over the body, and mm-hmm. that if if uh, hey you know liver's obstructed, so I gotta stick yeah no I guess body. I I guess what I'm just imagining is how you know it's like just go in there with all the bravado that you have, and don't don't back down, don't turn back, just. Say it, and if they don't believe you, say it with a more commanding tone, and just and, fake it till and, you make it. and confuse them, and they don't know anyway. Just fake it till you make it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It it flies in the face of conventional. Um, well, if you think about it, like when we're first starting out, and- anybody who's worked in any kind of medicine where you deal with patient care, there's the first when you're learning, you have to develop a, a certain level of confidence that right. you have to go in and make that person feel like you know what you're doing. Right. If you don't, and even when you don't know what you're doing, because right. we've all been there, where you right. absolutely have no idea what you're doing, you definitely don't want to make that patient feel like you don't right. have any do- thing you right. know what you're doing. But now I know to just go, hey, the liver is obstructed. So I don't know what else you want from me. Cue the, the violins, please. Wow. And so when you get to the Renaissance... It's interesting because economic prosperity from, you know, trade and opened up trade routes, the new world is, is starting to prosper. The poor people are now starting to, are able to afford uh, medical care and they're able to actually afford care from physicians where before they were kind of shut off from that. And so you start to see professional medicine start to really kind of establish itself just a little bit more. And so uh, now kind of fast forward to the new world and more people are starting to make the trip 
to America and you have physicians that are trained in universities that are able to provide care for the common people in Europe, they start to make their way to the new world at first, but then they're like, I'm good. <laughs> because the new colonists actually, and this was interesting, this kind of goes a little bit off track, but I, I think it you kind of, we get back on the same road because you kind of have to figure out why, how traveling doctors became so prevalent, especially in America, mm-hmm. because new colonists turned to local healers and traditional remedies and cures because that's kind of all they had. Mm-hmm. And they would learn a lot from Native Americans about how to mm-hmm. cure things and what plants were actually medicinal and that kind of thing, because that's all you kind of really had. Mm-hmm. And so you had the very high mortality rate, malaria, yellow fever, diphtheria, very high infant mortality rate. And so you really didn't have established physicians that were traveling along with some of these colonists that were going. And so you kind of, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And so as they started to get more established, they started to go, hey, you know, why don't you come over to the new world and you can set up shop. And these doctors like, why would I do that? (laughs) (laughs) So you had some that would come and then they realized that it, it wasn't really working out because a lot of this was touch and go. You know, the new world was a really harsh, hostile place. And so if you have a medical practice, and that's like when you ask uh, physicians now to go to areas that are underserved. Yeah. They're like, why would I do that? And so kind of the same deal. They're like, you know, I don't know if they worked off their college loans by going to an underserved I think it attract, I think those kinds of situations attract a, a very specific type of doctor and people who really get into it solely for the purpose of helping others and and healing others and, and have, they are not in it for the money. Sort of like this podcast, Brian. Correct. <laughs> where this is a passion project we for us. We are not in it for the money. This is not some money, quick money making scheme. Not at <laughs> by, all. By any means, in case the five of you listening haven't been if able to tell so far. In money, <laughs> right. Not at all. <laughs> So a lot of the care, uh, like I said, was kind of a carryover from from Europe. And so the people that were willing to make the voyage may have had some training in medical care. So you do have some barber surgeons, you have apothecaries, you definitely have midwives. Midwives were a big deal as far as because mm-hmm. everyone's having babies. And so you had to have somebody that knew what to do. And so mm-hmm. midwives uh, carried over that tradition and they were kind of respected in that society. But then you have to actually have what they call minister physicians. And remember the connection, especially in the early in the new world, you still mm-hmm. had very, very devout Christian beliefs and societies that were set up that way. And so the church really kind of was the only link you really had to spirituality and medical care. Because again, if you have diarrhea, you did something. It's your fault. You sinned. You were bad. So so physicians (laughs) trained in England and Scotland begin to make their way slowly but surely uh, towards more of the 1700s. And so you start to see the first hospitals appear in 1722 in New Orleans, actually, and the first medical society established in Boston in 1735. And after that, the first medical degree actually was awarded in 1770 for the Medical Department of King's College in New York. And so here we start to see actual records where you kn- you have diaries that are kept by physicians which describe the day in the life, which was really interesting. And you hear that's kind of the way it worked. And so one of them I, I came across describes uh, a typical day where a doctor, there's a guy, a doctor by the name of Richard K. In 1750, he describes various house calls that he made. And his typical day was home in the morning and then visits in the afternoon and evening. And here's a uh, excerpt from the diary. He says, and this is one of his entries, fellow church member Joseph Barron had pain in his right hip and belly plus gout. And all of his children had smallpox. <laughs> 
Oh, and by the way. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait. And all of them had smallpox. <laughs> and so it was really interesting to see, like, you read these diary entries and you see, you know, the way that patient care was done. You, they, they went to the patients. And we're going to get into kind of why that was. Right. Uh, one of the things is that people just avoided hospitals. Yeah. I mean, hospitals, again, we've talked about this before. Uh, they had a reputation for being dirty, and and uh, that's where you go to die, basically. I mean, you had a really high risk of catching an infection um, because doctors didn't yet know how diseases were spread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so and one of the things that really forwarded medicine in the new world and the, I guess, the business of medicine and the exposure of doctors to more patients was actually smallpox. And I thought this was really fascinating because smallpox inoculation was, and again, these things start to cross over. We Mm -hmm. think these are all new uh, topics that we're debating now, (laughs) not even close. Healthcare, how healthcare is delivered, Mm -hmm. how healthcare is paid for, different topics in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Again, we're repeating history because smallpox inoculation was a new concept and people didn't know how it worked. So smallpox inoculation was uh, very controversial at the time. And some people didn't know, obviously they really didn't have a theory of how it worked, but Mm -hmm. physicians at the time did know that by by somehow, by putting some degree of a live virus Mm -hmm. in another human host, that it it provided some layer of protection from actually mm-hmm. contracting smallpox. Mm-hmm. And so physicians at the time were starting to make house calls to different homes. And I mentioned the one guy who's all the children had smallpox. <laughs> they were actually not only inoculating patients in areas where they would allow it, but they were also doing research and they were keeping track of who was inoculated, uh, what happened after the inoculation. They, they all oh, kept very meticulous mm-hmm. records that mm-hmm. was also, and so uh, patients knew that they would call on the doctor, the doctor would visit them, it was their own clinical trial. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so what I found interesting is that after the person, they determined whether the people were sent to what they call pest houses, where if you were going to be quarantined, they would send you to a uh-huh. pest house where you were around a bunch of other people <laughs> that had the same disease. And so, and again, uh, stuff that we're all dealing with nowadays right. with people afraid of vaccinations, right. we're dealing with, with uh, pandemics and all these yeah. other things. Their research allowed them to determine where quarantine was necessary or where it may have been necessary to restrict movements of people. Very similar to what we yes. deal with today. Yes. So I thought that was really interesting. So fast forward to the 1800s. And we start to see people moving uh, further away from major cities and densely populated areas with colonial expansion. And travel was very slow. And so here's where we start to really see what we really associate with the house call, which really started in the 1800s and had its real, uh, really kind of kept up until right before the Second World War. Yeah. And and just like today, I mean, even before you would summons a doctor to come and make a house call for you, just like today, how often do you go to the doctor? I mean, if you're not on maintenance medication or whatever, how often do you really go to the doctor? Me personally, when I'm sick. Exactly. (laughs) And and that's not very often. I mean, I know today we're in better health than they were then. But but nonetheless, when you do get sick, what's the first thing you do? You try to treat it yourself, right? (laughs) Or you get your (laughs) lovely wife to try to treat you or, or, you know, when maybe when you were younger, before you were married, your mama, (laughs) get your mom to try to take care of you and treat you. But, you know, generally people get treated, would would get treated at home by their family members first. And most often, the you know, the woman of the house, because mm-hmm. that was sort of the women's role was to care for, nurture and heal, that kind of thing. And lots of people back then were aware of all the basic treatments. Like they, they knew about bleeding. They knew how to do that. They, 
I don't know that they did leech therapy. <laughs> I don't know well, if people had leeches sitting around in glass jars. There are various home remedies. We talked about the right. red clay and vinegar in Georgia right. and that kind of stuff. Exactly. And so people had different things that were carryovers that their mother did and their mother did and their mother did. Exactly. So. But yeah, so whoever, you know, the, the women were in charge of caring for the sick, which I also think is ironic because... Again, with medicine taking two steps forward and one step back, there's this ebb and flow of things that happen along the timeline of historical medical practices. And in the ancient times in Egypt, women were in medicine, they were physicians. And then, you know, you go for, I don't know how many centuries where that was taboo and women were not allowed to practice medicine all the way up until the last few hundred years, women were able to get into medicine again. But for many, many years, women were not allowed to become doctors. But if women were taking care of someone in the home and, and things weren't progressing like they expected, they might get someone nearby, another woman. So if you had someone in the home taking care of you and that didn't work, then you would summon a doctor to come and provide treatment in the home. Before telephones, someone would have to physically go summon the doctor. And usually it was just a note given to the doctor that said, come at once. <laughs> They didn't know what they were going to find. You had to be ready for anything, actually. After telephones, you had to wait for him to arrive, but at least the doctor could establish before he left if it was a true emergency. Most patients were seen in their homes, not in a doctor's office, because going to see the doctor at his office, even if he had one, wasn't wise, because if you're calling the doctor to come to your house, you're very sick, and you're probably too sick to travel, and traveling would probably just make you worse, if not kill you, especially in the days before there were cars or paved roads. When you arrive to his office, you he's probably out making house calls anyway, so he's probably not there. Like you talked about earlier, patients having treatment in their homes, it was a more familiar and comforting environment. So that was really the ideal place for them to be treated and convalesce. It's interesting the dynamic of having a doctor in your home versus going to an office and seeing a doctor because doctors spend a lot of time with the patient when they would make a house call. They spend a lot of time with the family as well. They visit the home frequently throughout the course of the illness, ironically. <laughs> so even with all this increased traveling and having to sludge through rain and snow and <laughs> whatever, whatever you had to endure to actually get to the patient. If you were taking care of a patient that was sick for several days, you would make several calls to go see that patient. And in those days, there were fewer malpractice lawsuits. It's still true today that the more time that a doctor spends with a patient and the better the bedside manner you have way more latitude on how bad you can jack things up <laughs> and still not get sued. The number of patients that a single physician could manage depended on the size of the geographic territory he had to cover. So he could only take care of patients that were within a reasonable distance. So Brian, physicians spend a lot of time on horses or in buggies, actually many hours a day. <laughs> And now it's hard just to get five minutes with them in their office. But they had to travel so far by foot or by horse before there were buggies or cars. And there are written accounts of uh, doctor's diaries and early medical records that describe them getting lost. <laughs> because, you know, this is before the days of paved roads and, and they would just be following some trail. Google and, Maps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was no ways. Take a left at the next door. Right. <laughs> Make a legal U-turn. <laughs> they had inclement weather to deal with. I mean, 
I'm thinking of rain and snow, but also the heat. So they were limited as to the number and types of instruments that he could bring with him. He could really only bring what would fit in a doctor's bag or a saddlebag. And I'm just imagining how frustrated I get when we don't have the size sterile gloves that I like to wear. (laughs) And I have to wear some that are floppy and too big. So I can only imagine what it would be like to make a house call and have to be prepared for literally anything from a toothache to, you know, a breech birth to appendicitis <laughs> and Size have just a, and a limited, yeah, just have a limited stuff. So, yeah. So you mentioned that uh, earlier that travel was really slow and for the, for the patient on the patient side, owning a horse on a uh, horse drawn vehicle at the time, horse and buggy was expensive and it's expensive as owning a car today. And so people kind of don't realize mm-hmm. that people think everyone had a horse. Um, and if you were living on a farm somewhere, you probably did have a horse to be able to get around, but having a horse drawn vehicle, not so much and not, not everybody had access to that. And then think about this. If you were sick with like a major like toothache or a broken bone or something like that, or just, just really, really sick, imagine having to drag yourself to the barn. Okay. Get on a horse and then flop yourself to the doctor's <laughs> office while you're about to die from some sort of illness. No. Not necessarily the most practical yeah. thing. And so you mentioned the different ways that doctors got around uh, walking, but doctor's buggies became uh, kind of a big deal. And so uh, limited, being limited in the kind of, and the amount of, of, of instrumentation that they could bring with them. The buggy, you ever watch Pimp My Ride back in the day? <laughs> this no. was Pimp My Buggy. They basically took these buggies and they made these like, they made them into doctor buggies. And these mm-hmm. were really, uh, and people would have to look this up, but they were kind of purpose, purposefully designed Victorian era buggies that they really kind of made specific uh, to what their needs were. And so they were really wide wheel based, low center of gravity to prevent rollovers because they knew that they were going to have to be traveling in some cases extremely fast to get to where they were going. Oh, I have a fascinating story to tell you about. Well, I don't know if it's fascinating, but it's a good story and it's appropriate to tell here. So five years ago, my son was living in Egypt. He was in this Arabic immersion program. And so uh, I went to visit him for two weeks and we went to see the pyramids. (laughs) And when we got to the pyramids, it was a 45 minute ordeal between Mama Aza was her name. She was uh, the school director's mother and she was sort of like our travel guide and host while we were there. Mama Aza had to barter with the uh, the guys there giving camel rides because I said, the only thing I want to do when I'm in Egypt, I don't care what else I do, but I have to ride a camel. So, <laughs> so I knew that at the pyramids, I was going to ride a camel. And so I wanted to ride a camel. My son wanted to ride a horse. And Mama Aza was going to ride in a, in a buggy, you know, pulled by a horse. So here we go, (laughs) trotting through the desert sands around the pyramids. And um, my son is in front of me. And then behind me is Mama Aza in this horse-drawn buggy. (laughs) And I'm just trying not to fall off of my camel because it is, you're really high up in the air. It's, it's, um... It, it is something. It, I mean, it was fun. I would do it a hundred times over again, but it, it was a little bit like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty high off the ground here. But anyway, um, I turn around to 
you know, just look around and whatever. And <laughs> I see that the horse and buggy is going a little bit fast and we're about to start sort of taking a corner. I turn around and I look and I watch as this buggy just goes flying over on its side. And I'm just like, my camel is still just trotting at whatever speed he's been trotting at, <laughs> not breaking his stride at all. And and I can hear Mama Oz screaming. <laughs> she wasn't hurt. That's the only reason I'm laughing because nobody was hurt. But it just goes like... Like I thought about that and I thought about, you know, how crazy of an experience that whole thing was when I was reading this because I was thinking, yeah, they they had to have some rollover proof <laughs> design going into that. Yeah. So the whole thing was designed for that purpose to prevent rollovers because they knew that they were going to be having to make emergency calls yeah. where they had to get to where they were going Fast. In, a, in a hurry or they yeah. might have to transport a patient in a hurry. And so a couple of the other things that they did, they, they designed it so that the equipment could be stored in the front uh, footwell beneath a dashboard. And so that the driver could take corners at really, really high speeds without necessarily having to worry about the equipment to lose in the his back. Stuff. Yeah, flying out of the back of the thing. <laughs> like when you have something on your floorboard in the front seat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, or groceries when you and see. And you're like, you I hear wish a bottle that of salsa go there. flying back. Yeah. And they, yeah. So they were made to be uh, fast and safe. That was the whole idea. And so that, was a, that became synonymous with the doctor. And remember, just like you said, the, in emergency situations, the doctor had to be, and I'm using my air quotes, sent for. And so, you know, send for Dr. Johnson and then go get him and he'd come flying around the corner in his buggy. So, Christy, now that he's made it fast and safe without rolling that thing over, what was a typical doctor house call like? <laughs> well, uh, every call was a big surprise, which is actually, you know, one of the funny things that that I've I think I've mentioned this to you, Brian, at work is that. This is why I love my job is because you walk in the room to see a patient, you you never know what is going to happen. You never know what you're going to see or hear or <laughs> or find. Same is true of a house call. <laughs> Doctors had to know how to treat just about everything. I mean, they they had to be prepared for everything, like I said before, for anything from like toothache to to appendicitis. And I even read some accounts where sometimes the doctors were even expected to take care of sick livestock. So I'm just imagining going to your primary care physician and saying, hey, I have this knee swelling or whatever, but also, can you take a look at my horse? That's really interesting because I wonder how that leads into when did veterinary medicine start? I, don't I mean, know. we're not on that topic, yeah. but I'm, I'm really, I, that makes me kind of wonder. I don't know. Yeah. It does make you wonder, right? Yeah. But it's funny because um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I love my primary care physician. She is so amazing and she's got the greatest bedside manner. She's just so nice. And, and uh, I think she probably would look at my horse if I asked her to. <laughs> but in those in these days, this now we're talking about sort of the 18th and 19th century, maybe very early 20th century. Even surgeries were performed in people's homes. Did you ever watch the Netflix show The Crown? Yes, but I only saw the first season. Okay, did you see where they operated on him in oh, his yeah. study, and yeah, they yeah. they actually removed his lung uh -huh. in the study? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so doctors operated on patients in their homes, but it was you know, limited to usually superficial kind of surgeries. And also, 
it was limited to what the patient can endure as far as their pain threshold, because again, there was, this is before the days of, (laughs) this is before the days of everything. This is before the days of anesthesia. (laughs) This is before the days of infection control and germ theory and all of that. So usually they would put the patient on the kitchen table and and go to town. Drink some whiskey. Yeah. (laughs) Brian, do you want to tell us what the doctor traveled with as far as like what what was in his doctor's bag? Yeah, I mean, the the doctor's bag, just like you said, if if I had, when I say the word house call, I think everyone has the same image in their head. That quintessential. Right, with that big black bag. And that big black bag actually was a specific kind of bag. It's actually called the Gladstone bag. The Gladstone bag was invented in the mid-1800s by a guy named J.G. Beard. And so it was named Gladstone after the British Prime Minister, William Everett Gladstone. Uh, And the reason was the guy, J.G. Beard, apparently was a supporter of his. And so I guess it would be like naming it the Trump bag or something like that. (laughs) Sorry, I had to throw that in there. So it was very, very popular with all sorts of professions and, and primarily because of the way that it was made, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it contained a variety of tools that the doctor would carry with him. So medicine, medicine bottles, surgical amputation kits, measuring kits, needles, syringes, tourniquets, etc. So the bag, the reason it was so popular in its construction was so vital to what they were doing is because it was a stiff, upright design with a wide mouth that made for the perfect medical bag. So the bag stayed open when it needed to be open because of the way that it was made. And if you imagine, these guys had to carry with them stuff that was very fragile. And so you had medicine Mm -hmm. bottles that were made out of glass. You had needles. You had different kinds of chloroform that you might have with you. And remember, (laughs) thermometers... that breaking. (laughs) Right, exactly. Thermometers at that time were still very fragile, made of glass and filled with... Mercury. Exactly. So that's definitely not something that you want breaking in your bag. But the da- the bag was able to fasten and lock, which was actually very important for security. Mm-hmm. But the main thing is that they can move it around without the contents shifting around and kept things relatively secure and safe. Mm-hmm. So um, like you said, doctors had to be ready for anything. Broken bones, stitches, resetting fractures, childbirths, stitching wounds, and even minor <laughs> surgeries. So you had to have everything. And you had surgical amputation kits in the bag. So you can imagine being able to carry this thing around with you to be able to be ready for anything that you could possibly, you know, have happen. So now, of course, the contents that were contained in these bags changed over the years. In the 18th and 19th century, some of the common instruments that you could see inside a doctor's bag were a stethoscope, a tongue depressor, some type of lighting device, a sphygmomanometer, which is an instrument used to measure blood pressure, Reusable glass syringes and needles. And then (laughs) also a torch, (laughs) I guess, for carterizing. Ah. This one I had to to look up the word. It's called a plesser. And this is actually one of those reflex hammers. And I was thinking, how necessary is it to have the reflex hammer? How necessary is the plesser? It's like when I carry my tweezers in my purse, like... When have I ever needed tweezers when I'm not at home? I mean, I cannot tell you the last time, but I actually usually have a pair of tweezers <laughs> in my purse. So, And then they had the ethyl chloride spray, which is a local anesthetic, which is actually the same kind of stuff that we use before we do a needle procedure in some of our cases, Brian. Mm-hmm. Scalpels and other surgical instruments. They had catheters. They had dressings and plaster bandages. But they also had... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I'm sorry. I had to interrupt you. So they had <laughs> they had reusable needles and syringes 
and reusable catheters. Uh-huh, yeah. Ew. Ew, yeah. Mm. People who don't know what a catheter is, Yeah. it's a tube that you place <laughs> in your urethra. Let's right. put it like that. <laughs> they also would often carry their own medications, but but they were medications and concoctions that they would create their, themselves on site. So they also read that they carried a mortar and pestle, which mm-hmm. is like the little grinding deal. Mm-hmm. And so they could grind up their own uh, compound medications, I guess is what they call it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Compounding. Yeah. yeah because they would, yeah, mix it. Which actually you go to together. a compounding pharmacy today, which is very controversial because I don't think they're, <laughs> there's licensing doesn't have issues. The same, doesn't yeah, have the they're same. Like, I can make it for you. <laughs> I remember my doctor used to prescribe something. Um, for my migraines years, this was years ago. This is like in the nineties, he prescribed something for my migraines and I had to go get the prescription filled at a compound for compounding pharmacy. And there was only like one in my area. And know. so what happens? You just walk in and then hand them the thing and go, and they just go, hold on. No, like I remember, I, I remember it being like a several day thing. I usually wasn't something that I would just go. I, if I recall correctly, I think I would drop it off and then like a few days later I'd go pick it up. Or maybe no that was just a convenience thing, but on. I wouldn't sit there and wait. Oh, okay. No, well, there was no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> there wasn't some plexiglass where I could watch him mix up yeah, my drugs. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing like that. So uh, when we talk about the golden age of uh, house calls and doctors, physicians making house calls, you know, we, we really are talking about kind of the mid or the kind of the late 1800s to the early 1900s. Um, and as the westward expansion continued and the frontier kind of happened, mm-hmm. doctors actually, I mean, this is something we'll touch on again later in, in, in future episodes, but but it was harder to get doctors to come out west because it was dangerous. And again, mm-hmm. the same thing with coming to the new world. They're like, why would I do that? And so <laughs> you had to get groups of uh, citizens to actually band together to be able to pay for a doctor to come out and provide services to that community. And so he'd set up his shop in a, in a frontier town, and then he would provide uh, medical care to that, that population. So after when cities start to kind of become more modernized in the early 1900s, you see advances in medicine, communication, transportation, obviously the automobile makes travel much safer mm-hmm. and faster. The telephone, you can actually call the doctor instead of having, right. your, you know, some <laughs> seven-year-old sin for Dr. Johnson. <laughs> right. You know, you just call him I the phone. I always imagine like Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, if, I could, doctor. if I could live in another day and age, I'd live, I'd live on the prairie. <laughs> Most doctors were general practitioners because specialization had not yet evolved to the level it it is currently. Mm -hmm. And as it started, as medicine started to kind of evolve uh, in the 20th century. So the time spent with each patient, which you mentioned earlier, was drastically increased. And by the end of the 1920s, the American families' physicians were making, they, they, you know, these are statistics, but 3.6 calls for the average illness. So that's what you said. Like, you basically, you tried to call on the patient as much as possible during Mm -hmm. the course of the illness, and you were trying to see that. They were taught in medical school that you needed to spend as much time as possible with that patient as you saw them through the treatment. Yeah, because the doctor followed up with the patient. The patient didn't follow up with the doctor. Right, exactly. And (laughs) and again... So, it's exactly opposite of the way it is now. Correct. And... And what you talk about also is that, uh, like we mentioned in the beginning, about doctors visiting the patient in the home. So the the physician has an opportunity to observe the patient's surroundings, interact with the family, find out what other contributing factors are contributing to the disease that the person has. And this, Mm -hmm. I'm obviously not a doctor, but this this reminded me, in my former life, I was a fitness trainer. And uh, I would have clients, all I did nutrition and fitness with with my clients. And some of them would come in and we'd do these programs. (laughs) 
and I would give them everything I had. And they're <laughs> like, like, why isn't this working? And I'm like, you haven't lost a pound and there's no muscle. Like, what so you is think going if maybe on? you went to their kitchen, you might have and some insight? And they swore up and down. They're like, Brian, I'm doing everything you're telling me to do, man. It's not working. And I'm like, okay. And I always thought to myself, if I could just go home one day and open that fridge and look in that cabinet, I'm sure the story that you're telling me is not going to match up. So I think it goes a long way. And uh, there's a level of, of comfort. You talk about white coat syndrome and people who don't know what that is. That's that's people who actually have a measurable um, uh, hypertension. That Ironically, I have white coat do syndrome. Do you really? My wife yes. does too. And it's funny because I'm in the I'm in I'm <laughs> you know in healthcare expect, yeah. and every time I go, my doctor and I laugh. Every doctor that I have, we we laugh about it because it's completely ironic that I have it. But it is it is legit. My blood pressure is always high when I go there. But if I go to work and have someone take my blood pressure at work, it's completely normal. That's interesting. I, the the one time I I had a higher blood pressure at one point. Um, and then I stopped, I cut out salt mm-hmm. and all of a sudden my blood pressure just dropped like really low to the point where one doctor was like, I would never advise anybody to, to increase salt intake, but <laughs> dude. maybe in your yeah. case, <laughs> <laughs> but what I've also learned is that there are certain people like after I eliminated the salt that maybe my normal range is a little bit lower and that's mm-hmm. just kind of the way I am. But at any rate, and once I went to my last doctor visit, actually, I discovered Starbucks cold brews, nitro brews. <laughs> and, I, and they thought you had white coat syndrome. Yeah, my appointment was like at four o'clock. So I'm like, I'll just stop at a Starbucks real quick. And I'd never had one of these things before. And oh. if anyone who has not had one, Starbucks has figured out a way to put crack into <laughs> coffee and serve it up. And so I had one of those and I went in and I was like, hi, how are you doing? Let me tell you my history. And so they took my blood pressure and he's like, I'm going to take it again. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens to me too for the people, the little the little medical assistants or nurses that come in and take my blood pressure and stuff. They're always like, okay, just just close your eyes and try to relax and, and I'm going to do it again. And then they're like, okay, let me just, let me just put it on the other arm. <laughs> yeah. And they were, they finally asked like, do you normally have this? And I said, oh, you know what? I actually had a start with They're like, don't do that again. <laughs> So, no, it's really interesting because uh, from an economics standpoint, caring for patients in their homes by making house calls kept patients out of the emergency room, mm-hmm. kept them out, freed up hospital beds. Mm-hmm. And uh, home care, again, allowed uh, patients and physicians a greater amount of satisfaction. So it's interesting. I talked to my mom about this, who uh, was born after World War II. But uh, <laughs> she does remember having doctors come and make house calls. Mm-hmm. My mother was born in Georgia, in Rome, Georgia. And again, we're black people from the South. She had mentioned to me that the black people during segregation, particularly in the South, that's where she was born and raised. And so mm-hmm. this is kind of, I don't know if this was all over the country, but definitely there where things were segregated. House calls were very, were the norm for black Americans at the time because they weren't allowed in hospitals. Oh. And the doctors at the time were not allowed admitting privileges in the hospital. And so not only could the patient not be seen in the hospital, but the doctor themselves were not allowed to admit their patients in white hospitals. So were these black doctors seeing yes. black patients? In her okay, case, yes. So, and I don't okay. know, uh, and this is my mom giving me her experience. Sure, yeah, yeah, So yeah. I don't know, and they had a black doctor yeah. who would come to okay, them. Got and it. everyone she knows had a black doctor who would come to them. So black doctors would see black patients in Mm -hmm. their homes. Mm -hmm. They could not admit their patients into local white hospitals. Unless you had some sort of facility that cared for black patients, then 
it wasn't possible. And now, to be fair, there are some white hospitals, and I'm saying white hospitals because that's these things where it was colored in this white. Is that's what the they way were, it was. Yes, so don't yes. get mad at me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they the unless they had a colored wing or uh-huh. they had a spe- specific uh, uh, area to treat black uh, patients that uh-huh. they separated, uh-huh. that would be the only way that you were going to be allowed um, wow. in. And so, and we, and I think we had talked about the documentary that they did a while back about the Mayo Clinic and how, and I thought it was very interesting that the Mayo Clinic was uh, one of the first to actually allow black doctors to come in mm-hmm. and learn because it was a, a really one of the groundbreaking places for research and learning and mm-hmm. where people would come to train. They were one of the first to allow black doctors, but they were also a product of the time. And mm-hmm. the, the deal was that black doctors could only see black patients and they could not treat white patients. And so hmm. they were very limited in who they were going to be allowed to see. And so this was the way it was. Yeah. So yeah. again, so <laughs> sorry, but, but I thought that was really, really interesting that my mom having that experience, yeah. but she said, but you got to remember though, that was the way it was for us. We didn't have a choice. Right. And so the connection that the doctor had with each family, yeah. they knew who was who. And so talking about my, I bet they loved their doctors. Right. They probably yeah. really did. And so yeah. talking about that story, I told in the beginning about my dad and my being born in, the, yeah. <laughs> in that bed. That was one of those situations where you really, she, my, my, my grandmother probably wasn't going to be admitted to a local white hospital. Yeah. So the baby had to be born at home and that's just kind of the way it was. Yeah. And so she was, and I slept in that bed all those years later. Well, <laughs> well, I'm Caucasian and my mom was born at home. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was more of a, I think because it is, they were poor and not right, because exactly. they were, yeah. And um, let me let me just say, let me just be really clear. I'm not saying for anybody gets mad at me, I'm not trying to say that this was the way it was all the way across the board. There are always places right. that this is just an anecdotal exactly. this is just this one is anecdotal to my isolated example. Yes, Perfect. yes, yes. Yes. So yes. I just want to make that clear before yeah. anyone goes, That's not true. <laughs> Um, but we also have to acknowledge history for what it was. And yeah. so that's kind yeah. of the way it was. Getting to where my mom was born, <laughs> we start to see the decline of the house call after World War II. And the couple things that killed it were the specialization that really starts to happen in right. medicine, where people start to branch off. The, the amount of general practitioners that I mentioned in 1928, being around 74% of people who graduated medical school became family doctors. They were well-rounded, that could do a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. that were gen- GPs, what we consider GPs now. And so by 1942, that percentage falls to below half. And then uh, by 1980, only about 15% of family physicians uh, existed, and only about 0.6 house calls were billed to Medicare at, in the 80s. So mm-hmm. it was still, and, it, and house calls still happen today. You can call a doctor that come, can come to you. Yeah, if you are a millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there is something called concierge medicine yeah. that, again, is available yeah. to people who well, are Well, we live wealthy. in L.A., and I know when I was doing the research for this, I did see that there's some company that started a number of years ago that started that concierge service, you know. But uh, And so the what we start to see is the, the really drastically altered relationship between the patient and the physician and the patient and the healthcare system. So now we go from the physician coming in and having a very interpersonal relationship with the patient, the family, the patient's other contributing factors to the illness, the dynamics of the home, uh, and having that really, that connection is now gone because now you have patients sitting in crowded waiting rooms, Mm -hmm. uh, waiting for uh, short, very short visits. If they see the physician at all, you may not even see the doctor. You may 
they see a mid-level provider. And shout out to all mid-level providers out there. Right. Noth- ain't nothing wrong with the mid-level <laughs> provider. Mid-level providers are really awesome, by the way. <laughs> um, and so you may not, uh, that relationship is just different now. And follow-up appointments are very complicated because you're dealing with your insurance and how things are going to be paid and whether or not you're going to be authorized for this and that. And so the relationship, the, the, the decline of the house call and I'm not saying that the, the house call was the responsible for all of this, but you, mm-hmm. you definitely see the connection between the, the, the patient and the physician has drastically, drastically changed. Right. And the specialization alone, I had a really bad skin infection once. And people who can't see my face, I'm gorgeous. And uh, <laughs> right, it's, it's smooth like caramel. <laughs> but no, my my, it was terrible. I had some sort of infection, and uh, I don't know. And to this day, we have no idea what caused it. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to my regular doctor. I went to a few dermatologists, and it was just they were started. They just come in the room and they start guessing. They're like, "Oh, it could be this, could be that, could be this." I'm like, "Well, yeah. don't we?" <laughs> Aren't there tests? Aren't there like special lights? I Are mean, you going to do anything besides give me a yeah. list of differentials? And so I would, because I could get that on the internet. Yeah, and so that's basically what I would do. I would yeah. come in, I would research kind of what I thought it was, yeah. and then I would wind up going back and forth with him. Like I read this, yeah. And they go, nah, it's probably not that. And I'm like, well, how about this? And so yeah. I'm like going back and forth, like ping pong with the doctor with these different things, and they basically would say, oh, one doctor told me it was just stress. And I mean, at the time, I was had a very, very stressful job, and I was traveling a lot. And I think it was something where I was staying in hotels, and I think something I cut some. Yeah. And uh, oh, it just, maybe you had bed bugs. I don't know. It was something terrible. But uh, but at if any it was rate, only on your face, maybe not. It just kind of went away, and after that, it was it was just gone. But it was it was really debilitating. But I I just remember thinking like. You're, I'm paying all this money for all this healthcare, and nobody's yeah. been able to tell me anything except a bunch of guesses. And uh, whereas I can imagine the doctor coming to my home and following up with me every few yeah. days and saying, "Well, this isn't working. Let's try this, and yeah. let's see what's in the home. Maybe there's something that let me see what your bedding looks like. Let's see what your living area looks yeah. like. You know, does anyone else in the home have it? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. You can imagine what the healthcare would be like like that. So, yeah. Um, and so I kind of looked at the future of the house call. And I thought this was really interesting because if you know, medicine was described to me at one point when I worked in uh, medical sales, I had a doctor or surgeon tell me medicine is a dirty business. (laughs) (laughs) And what he meant by that is that the business of healthcare is convoluted, complex, and can be kind of cutthroat and nasty sometimes. And it's all about... Don't peek behind the curtain. Yeah. Just just be happy with what you got. Uh, but I think Medicare actually really determines uh, the services that we get and oh. how how things are paid for. And if, if the, the people who provide the care are not reimbursed and Medicare is not reimbursed, then you're going to get what you get. And so there is a real push to cut costs in whatever way you can. Mm-hmm. And so not only do we have specialization, but we also have, again, shout out to all the mid-level providers out there, <laughs> mid-level providers who are very well-trained and highly trained to be able to provide um, a kind of a connection, a midway between the doctor and, I guess, lower levels of care. They cut costs tremendously. So the same service that a, a mid-level provider may give you is going to be drastically cheaper than the doctor coming in and tell you the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. that 10-minute visit from the doctor saying, you have a cold they bill that for a lot more money than right. the mid-level coming and going you have a cold you know <laughs> um but so what they notice is that in 1998 actually medicare increased reimbursement for house calls by 50 percent and so the number of house calls billed to medicare has continued to rise annually 
And so now with the aging population that we can, we constantly have been hearing about, you know, baby boomers getting older and older, mm-hmm. there's a real push to bring back house calls in a big way to be able to provide care and keep them out of the hospital, to mm-hmm. keep them free up beds, free up emergency rooms, free up clinical practices mm-hmm. so that you're not overwhelming the healthcare system. Just like what we talk about, uh, and again, we're doing this during the pandemic, the pandemic and mm-hmm. we talk about overwhelming the healthcare system, but not even with a, an acute disease, but if you're, you know, constantly bringing people in and people get older, they have more problems. Right. And so if you can have house calls where physicians can can be freed up to go and, and look at patients in their homes, that can yeah. be, that has a lot of benefit. And then you have telemedicine and virtual medicine that are starting to become Oh, which is popular. awesome. I love those. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think if you can make a house call virtually and yeah. say, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, I, it looks like you're doing all right, you know. Uh, so. If I, I 100% think that that is the way to go for these little appointments that you have to go for like if you're on a maintenance medication for example oh my god it is so annoying to have to take off work and go you know Mm -hmm. oh yeah well if you need a fist uh uh, god i said fisting (laughs) if you need a good fisting (laughs) i meant to say history and physical but it came out as history and physical For the record, for a good fisting, I need to go in. Pers- I need a house call. <laughs> That's the best thing you've ever said. Fisting was not part of the, and I think we mentioned that they had to be ready for anything, but I don't think they had to be ready for fisting. So a good history and physical can only be done by a practitioner in an office. You're not going to be able to do an accurate history and physical. I almost said it again, accurate history and physical uh, virtually. So I think it has its place and definitely telemedicine, being able to do follow-up appointments and that kind of thing right. virtually. For sure, yeah. There's, there's. You can even uh, go to clinics sometimes and you're still seeing the doctor through a, a virtual kind of uh, format. I know that that's been rolled out in some facilities where you actually go to the clinic and the doctor, you might see a PA or you might see uh-huh. a nurse and then they wheel a machine and the doctor's like, why am I here then if that's the yeah. case? You know, like, yeah. can't we do this that at home? Is, that is It seems kind of strange. stupid. But, um, but yeah, I thought the whole the whole topic I thought was really, really interesting and I, I didn't really realize, like I said in the beginning, how much this stuff really overlaps to yeah. what we're, we're talking about today. Yeah. So Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode, and we hope you join us again next week. Thank you.